You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. We are so glad to have Zane Alanine with us here tonight celebrating. His new collection is Watermelon. It's published by Radix Media. It's also going to be joined by James Tracy, who's going to be doing the honors, who's going to be emceeing, and also Amy Suzara is going to be with us as well. Uh, before we begin, as is customary at the beginning of each event, I would like to point out that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni peoples. So I take a moment to pay respects to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. So uh, tonight there will be reading, there will be discussion. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about James. Uh, James is an author, an activist, an organizer, uh, an instructor of labor and community studies at City College of San Francisco. He's co-author of Hillbilly Nationalists, Urban Race Rebels and Black Power, and the author of Dispatches Against Displacement, Field Notes from San Francisco Housing Wars. He is a dear, dear friend of City Lights, and we are delighted to have him MC this event. I want to point out to all of our friends who are online, we will be posting links with which you may purchase the book. I am now going to turn it over to James Tracy. James, it's yours. Welcome. Thank you very much. And we've got my biggest literary honor, which is I'm the co-author of No Fascist USA. Yes. yes. Uh, published by City Lights. Yes. And, yes. Uh, Right here, which is um, fantastic. Um, I actually was a bit of a monument as a guy who used to cut school just to come to City Light. So I was a big, big bulligan back in, back in the day. Um, so are. Yeah, I wish, <laughs> I wish it were true. So this event is co sponsored by the Howard Zinn uh, Book Fair. Uh, this, uh, and I have uh, two. Fabulous uh, co uh, co-organizers here in the in the audience. The Howard Zinn Book Fair uh, got started about eight years ago in the Mission District. Uh, we um, obviously we named named our book fair after Howard Zinn, the fantastic uh, historian, teacher, activist uh, you know, of many decades, who I think probably has, outside of Rage Against the Machine, has more people crediting, um, uh, you know, crediting him uh, as the, the person that changed their lives, that turned them on to brand new perspectives of seeing United States history, left history, workers' history, women's history, Native American uh, history. So why would the Howard Zinn Book Fair co-sponsor an event of of short stories and, poet, and, and, and poetry, besides the fact that both Zane and, uh, and Amy are fantastic writers. Uh, we are uh, honored to, uh, to co-sponsor this event because the people's history is not only written in nonfiction form. Sometimes the people's history is written in true crime form. You know, TJ English uh, pointed out when he was one of our our keynotes. Sometimes the people's history is written in tweets, whereas the gas, you know, as tear gas is literally found um, through the streets of the city. And sometimes it's written in some of the most beautiful prose that I've ever seen. Uh, Zane uh, had, 
had the honor of uh, hearing about these stories from uh, for for many years. He's going to so show us how to eat a water uh, watermelon. We're going to get that complete, completely sorted. Uh, what I love about uh, about about um, Zane is that he does from a from a standpoint of the heart. You know, this is very much a book that says socialism of the heart, anti-imperialism of the heart. Um, he does what people do with, with polemics, and Jack, you know, takes seven hundred pages to uh, to say, and he does it with these really simple, beautiful stories, uh, drawn and inspired by his own experience and his family, family's own experience, and also the the experiences of uh, many millions of, of, of people across uh, across the world. So we're so um, so honored to have to, to have Zane here and. Amy Cesara, who is stuck in traffic, but in San Francisco, uh, will be walking in, and um, from a very, from a different, very different stand, standpoint, uh, she does the, the exact same thing with her beautiful, with, with her beautiful work, and uh, truly, I think is uh, should be the the, the poet, poet laureate of the San Francisco Bay Area um, movements, and she also teaches at SF State. So, please. Put your hands together, both in cyberspace and here, for my dear friend Zane Elamine. Thank you, James. Thank you, City Lights. Thank you, Peter. Uh, this is a dream come true to read that City Lights. This is my literary mecca. I make a pilgrimage here every year, and so I'm 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 really. Uh, flattered to be allowed to do this um, and to have my book sold uh, directly from City Lights, that's such a, uh, an honor. Um, and uh, James and I have shared the stage and shared the trenches <laughs> too. Uh, and uh, last time uh, I was with James and Amy Cesara, who will be coming soon, was at the Howard Zinn uh, Book Festival when we read poems about exile from exile, basically, about uh, not just uh, being exiled from your home country, but being exiled in exile by gentrification. Um, and it was an amazing event. Um, so uh, today I'm going to be starting out by reading from one of the stories uh, in Is This How You Eat a Watermelon? And, um, I want to, this uh, book uh, uh, has seven short stories. The one I'll be reading from today is Sharifi versus the Party of God, uh, which is based on a, 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 on a woman that some of you in the audience might know. Uh, and uh, is this how you eat a watermelon is the second story, which is obviously the title story. And it's about a hedonistic man that's basically eating and drinking himself uh, to death in Beirut. And uh, in essence, he becomes a stand-in for the city itself, which has been uh, self-destructing uh, over the, especially over the past few years at an exponential rate. Uh, the Sayyid and the Snow Woman is the third story. And that's about the cleric that at the first snow in a village in South Lebanon, uh, builds a snow woman and uh, causes a scandal. Um, Groom is about uh, a man and woman in Al-Khubar in Saudi Arabia 
that encounter uh, an abused monkey, and through the monkey they actually recognize trauma that they've uh, sort of had, uh, had uh, been covering. Uh, uh, it basically exposes the trauma and, and shared trauma that they have uh, with the monkey. Uh, Kill Deer is uh, my first foray into ghost stories, and uh, Kill Deer is about uh, poets going on a residency in, uh, in the eastern shores of Maryland at St. Mary's College and uh, being triggered by the killdeer bird, which is a bird that basically uh, fakes its injuries in order to distract uh, people or and predators, uh, basically, from its nest, which uh, it, uh, the killdeer insists on making its nest on the ground. So, if you were to approach it, it would it would fly out to a distance and distract you by doing an Academy Award-winning performance of <laughs> pretending to be injured. And he's being triggered by this um, by the the, the killdeer call, and he he uh, it's basically. He's laboring with a poem, and, he, and at the end of the story, he gives a birth to a poem. Uh, Send my regards to your mother is, uh, uh, is drawn from my basically prison diary in Bahrain, where I was uh, made into a political prisoner and accused of terrorism when I wasn't even political at the time. Uh, and uh, the last one, The Birds of the Shafi. It takes place in April of 1975 when a dozen or so uh, school children are trapped in school for 43 days. And it, uh, it's, a, it's a story where the children who tend to deal with trauma uh, uh, tend to look at, you know, tend to vary uh, what's happening immediately. So basically, seeing war as a snow day. Uh, if, if there was ever a movie made and somebody actually made a, uh, turned it into a movie script, then he told me what, what would be on the poster, and I said, War as Snow Day. Um, so these are the seven stories, and I'll, I'll just start by uh, reading an excerpt from Sharifi versus the Party of God, which is the first story. Um, and I'm going to read. Uh, just parts of it, of course, and I'm going to read in the opening paragraph to give you a sort of a, back, a background about the setting, then jump to the middle uh, to, uh, to give you kind of a, a sample of the heart of the story, basically, of what happens. So, Sharifi versus the party of God. In cold months, Sharifi spends her time on the other side of the house in a communal courtyard that opens up to the valley. In that expanse, she has her meals, makes her tea, and washes for prayer. Walking into that space, you would think that it was decorated by Dolly. A sink attached to the exterior wall where the mirror reflects the green valley back at it, giving the impression that the wall is opening to a lush landscape inside the house. A frayed towel hangs at an angle from a rebar jutting out of the wall. A bare light bulb 
dangles from the concrete canopy like a misplaced idea. Sharifi stores things that she wants to keep out of reach of her relatives in a straw basket anchored at an impractical height on the wall with a metal hook, which doesn't make sense since she's the shortest member of the family. I'll skip a bit to the, to the main event in the story. In July of 2006, Israel invaded South Lebanon in a military operation called Summer Rain. The IDF always wanted to demonstrate their literary prowess to Western powers by putting literary labels on their invasions. The previous operation was actually called the Grapes of Wrath. The, poetic, the poetics here lie in the fact that Lebanon does not have any rainfall in the summer. In fact, all the rain is confined to the winter months. So summer rain is code for planned carpet bombing. The plan was to subject the Lebanese to a deluge of destruction for 72 hours and rout out the popular resistance that had expelled them from the country at the turn of the millennium. They would destroy every bridge on the main coastal road that connected the rural south with the rest of Lebanon. They would strafe the countryside, flattening thousands of homes. They assumed that this would force the Lebanese to fight among themselves and blame the armed resistance. Then they would sweep away anyone who ever took up arms against them through a massive ground offensive, all in three days. Things didn't go as planned, and the war lasted 33 days instead of three. Everyone in the village left in the first day or two and managed to zigzag their way to the city or the mountains where they were taken in by relatives and friends. Some did not manage to make it as their convoys were bombed along the route. Sharifi's two brothers and their families packed up as soon as they heard the thunderous approach of the bombers. Sharifi's nephews took turns running down to her room to plead with her to leave with them. Her answer to their pleas was the same. I would rather die in my home than live in that city of strangers. Her brother made one last attempt after the family and their essentials were loaded into three cars. Sharifi just dismissed him with a wave of the hand. May God protect you, be on your way. I'm too old to be spending what little time I have left on this earth scurrying around like a cockroach. They finally gave up and headed north to Beirut. A chain smoker, Sharifi rolled her own for three decades and then began to buy L&M cigarettes, an American brand. When homegrown tobacco was not abundant and her arthritis made it difficult to roll. Her hyperactive daily routine includes several tea and cigarette breaks. She would sit on a low stool, gather up her scarf on her lap, extend her tiny head over the kettle and glasses and burn away the tobacco with the same intensity that she does everything else in her life. This is the only time that she is still. In between these times, she's a blur of activity. It's a mystery how much housework she could generate daily. The outside observer would think that she runs the whole, whole household with children and such, but it's just Sharifi and her OCD. She would make a hundred yard dash from morning until 2 p.m. 
when she would knock herself out with a dosage of Valium that could knock out a cow. She depends on her nephews to buy her cartons of tobacco from general, from general store, which is a short walk away. Every week, someone coming from the city would stop at the general store to get a carton for her. All in all, she's been smoking for seven decades, and the miracle of it that she's never we've never heard her cough. Her brother jokes that she probably suppresses both cough and cancer through sheer hard-headedness. Day six of summer rain, drones buzzing night and day, targeting anything that moved, and Sharivi doggedly sticks to her routine. During nights, the villages are submerged in darkness as light itself is targeted, especially if it's mobile. There are no innocent lights. All light is tried and executed on the spot. Everyone knows the drill. Don't drive at night, not even a motorcycle, especially not a motorcycle. Don't turn on the porch lights and shut all windows with wooden shutters. Sharifi sits alone in her tiny house listening to the Arabic broadcast of Radio London on her transistor with a mangled antenna and manically eating her last piece of chicken, bone and all. She reclines on the wall, grabs her big, big lighter and her pack of smokes, tips her L&M art box and outslips her last cigarette. She's never lost count of them before. Sharifi curses the devil, puts the cigarette to her lips, winces as it sizzles, and lights up her face. She looks under the bed and in the closet, looks around her small space, and peeks out in the courtyard. She curses herself when she realizes that there is no one else to blame. She crushes the pack and asks out loud, what am I going to do with myself? She reaches under the bed and pulls out one of the many different size makeshift boxes. There she finds her silver flashlight with a slim long grip and a big bulb worth of a headlight. She grabs the force size A battery sitting on the window sill where she suns them to extend their life. She turns the flashlight to look into the bulb and switches it on, but nothing happens. She manages, she examines the bulb and gives the flashlight a smack and it comes on. She's momentarily blinded. Even when she recovers her eyesight, a few minutes later, she can see the ghost of the filament seared into her retina. She curses the manufacturers of practically everything that she owns, the Chinese. The Chinese are going to be the end of us. She crosses the courtyard with a flashlight on and the last cigarette dangling from her mouth. She goes up to the second floor balcony to look out over the main road. The drone buzzes above like a giant bee, but she's too fixated on the burning end of her last LNM to care. Then she hears the sound of potential salvation, a whispering among men and a stomping of feet on the move. The sound is coming from the south end of the main road, but she's buffered by the only house on that end of the village. She spots them soon, about a dozen men, some in full regalia with helmets and all, and some in fatigues and t-shirts, some of them carrying 
uh, one of them carrying a rocket launcher over his shoulder. The minute they reached the open road with the clearing on one side and the tobacco field on the other, Sharifi sets her light on the lead man. In the first seconds of silence, she starts to wonder if the Israelis have reached this far, this soon. She moves her light along the whole length of the platoon. When she sees that they're accompanied by an armored vehicle or a tank, she is assured that they are her people. She moves her spotlight back to the lead man. Is that the Hamadi boy? What? Is that the Hamadi boy? No, there's no Hamadi here. For God's sake, Haji, turn that light off and go inside. She moves the light to the source of the voice. May God give you good health, young man. Can one of you run down to an Ali's store and grab me some cigarettes? I'm completely out. The man in the lead moves into her line of light and shouts through cupped hands. Listen, Haji, and cameras hovering above us, and we have to move on. For God's sake, shut off that flashlight before that thing spots us. This thing, ringing the flashlight like a bell, this thing is nothing. This thing is practically a candle. We have to go, Haji. Goodbye. Go in peace. Shut off the flashlight and go inside. May God save you. Do me a favor. Aren't you a son of a village? Help out this old woman. I finished my cigarettes and I just need one pack. Just one to tide me over until tomorrow. May God save you, my brother. Haji, we don't have any cigarettes and we don't have the time to get you anything right now. Hear that buzzing? That's an MK drone. They're armed these days. They shoot at anything that moves and any light that flickers. Do you understand? Yes, but the general store is just two steps from here. And Ali will open it up for you if you knock. I know that it looks like the store is closed, but knock on the side door and she'll come down. I have an account with her, so you don't even have to pay. She'll put it on my tab. Just say that it's for Sharifi. There's no strength in God. Haji, we, we, we are in real danger. This lull won't hold much longer. We have to make it to the next village. For God's sake, shut off that flashlight before they hit us. They can spot a candle from these drones. Stop shaking that thing. May God preserve you, Haji. Stop shaking it. The whole affair will take a minute. The man turns back to the men as they try to stifle their laughter. This is unreal. This is the same house that was bombed in the last attack, he tells them, and waves, waves them on to march. Are you the party of God? Sharifi shouts at them. What? The man answers, knowing what she just said, but cupping his ear for the insult. You call yourself the party of God? What's your problem, woman? The party of God, you say? More like the party of Satan. Go ahead and march on. She rings the flashlight like a marshaler guiding a plane if it's dark. March, march on to Red Hades if I care. If it wasn't for this catastrophe that you got us into, I wouldn't be without cigarettes. Unbelievable. Let's go, men. The leader of the platoon wakes them on. Oh, why should you care about a miserable old woman like me? Why should you care if I die of deprivation? Am I fly to be swatted? I'm just going to go into my dark room and wither away. Is that what you want? You want me to wither away in darkness? Her voice trails off as she slowly realizes that she's talking to the now 
they can straight. secured and the doctors were ready to operate on Bassan the following morning. Not one, not two, but three doctors stand at the foot of his bed. Bassan is tired and nauseous, but the sight of them amuses him. When they begin to talk, he narrows his eyes and melts the triplets into one body. The fact that their speech was rehearsed and sequenced for maximum effect, as if coordinated by one body and communicated by three heads, helps enhance the illusion. Doctors are channeling his older brother, Kamal, the Minister of Labor. He can see Kamal sitting in their office, knee over knee, his bodyguard stoic beside him, giving the three-headed hydra stern instructions on how to approach Assad. You have to handle him like an adolescent. He's in his 40s, but he's a child, he might have said. Each doctor has dealt with Hassan at one point or another in the past few years because of his various health crises. Kidney failure, liver problems, diabetes, and high blood pressure. So they knew how to deal with him, but they would have been obliged to sit and listen and pretend to take notes out of fear of the minister. Hassan loves his food, his drink, and his family, or shall we say, families. His first wife was a Lebanese woman, Sa'ad, a childhood friend who was always amused by Hassan's Carpedian attitude that infuriated his family. She saw this as innocence, not immaturity, nor recklessness, and adored him for it. She gave him three kids, two boys and a girl. Hassan was in his element when he was with his children. It allowed him to roll on the carpet, play in the mud, be a ravenous eater, and liberate his inner Tasmanian devil. This caused problems sometimes, especially during weekends spent in the south in their home village of Swene. Having the wilderness nearby with its climbable thick trees, abandoned forts, hidden wells, renegade beehives, scorpions and snakes raised the risk of Hassan's antics. However, he did not need to leave the house and put himself at risk. He can do wild all by himself. Take, for example, the watermelon incident. One day, Hassan was sitting playing checkers with his youngest daughter, Huda, who was seven at the time. They were in the courtyard of Hassan's ancestral village home and were using the backside of Baghdad and box to play. Saad brought out a tray of watermelon slices it was a June afternoon of bearable dry heat, so they sat in the cool shade of an old lemon tree that arced over them, laden with fruit. Hassan looked up and saw Huda nibbling along the top of this red semicircle of a slice that dwarfed his face, her face. Is this how you eat the watermelon, he asked. She looked at him, puzzled, and waited for clarification. Is this how you eat a watermelon? He repeated. 
she started to worry as he was not using his usual terms of endearment. Then he added, do you eat it like this? He imitated her nibbling. Buddha looked back at her mother for help and caught her stifling a laugh. Do you eat a big slice of watermelon like a bird, like this? He picked up the slice with his nose, pinkies raised. Buddha broke out in a smile that prompted Hassan to explain, you eat it like this, like a goat. And Hassan went into typewriter mode, chomping wildly at the slice from one end to the other, watermelon seeds flying left and right. So Daddy's girl took the tip and ran with it, imitating him, putting her whole face into her slice of watermelon, filling her mouth and nostrils with it, digging in deeper until the rind curved up around her face. She looked at her father with a long red smile that extended up to her ears. Watermelon seeds entangled in her curls. He rewarded her with a pat on the back and a kiss on top of the head. Two days later, the family was back in Beirut. They arrived late at night and Sa'ad put the kids to bed. She returned to check in on them and noticed that Huda was snoring. She joked about it with Hassan. She's even taking on your snore, God help us. A week later, Huda was feverish and was having difficulties breathing at night. They called the family doctor and he diagnosed her with asthma and prescribed some holistic treatments, including weekends in the mountains. But two weeks later, Huda was still laboring with her breath day and night, so they took her back to the doctor. This time, the doctor located the problem with a cursory examination. There's a seed lodged up her left nostril, he told Hassan with a smile and a shake of his head. The damn thing is sprouting. <laughs> the doctor anticipated Hassan's accustomed hearty laugh, but Hassan just stood there with a look of terror on his face. I can take it out right now without putting her under, the doctor added. Hassan crouched in front of Buddha, pinched her cheek and said, it won't hurt, Habibi. The procedure took less than half an hour. The doctor put the extracted seed in a jar and told Hassan that he should keep it to preserve the memory for her. Years later, when Huda would leave home to attend Lebanese American University, she will take the jar with her. In my opening uh, remarks, I told you a little bit about our next next writer, Elisa Zara, who I first ran into many years ago at an event organized at City Lights around by wonderful Peter Maravallis uh, at the Manifesto event. And uh, we were blown away. I was in this little poetry troupe called the Molotov Mouse Outspoken War Troop, and we were all like, we got to recruit her, we got to recruit her. We never did. I think we might have tried and, and everything. Josiah tried and not to try it, everybody tried, but we were never able to recruit her to our collective. And that's uh, probably a great, great thing because she has just gone to produce one of the most beautiful books of poetry that I've read uh, for a long time, Souvenir. My friend Louis Rodriguez seems to, uh, uh, se seems to agree. Amy Cesare is a deep chronicler of our hopes, dreams, pains, and future. We need these poems now more than ever. Please put your hands together for one of the Bay Area's best poets, past 
present or future. This is our. Thank you, and wow, how, how cool to have this right here. Um, thank you so much. I I do have some books that I carried in my bag, so at some point they will be available. Um, this came out in 2014, so it's, but I'm excited to, to bring it back because, it, um, um, and by the way, I have a cold, but it's just a cold. Uh. <laughs> and if I don't either, I was teaching and I kept having a coughing fit, and I was like, they're like thinking, yeah. My son, so this is a perfect transition because my poem, the first poem I'm going to be about my son. And I, I, I'm really, really glad I walked into the tears of your stories because um, the watermelon image will never be erased from my mind. Like that, and I made, and as I was choosing, I was reading some of your, your work, um, I was choosing and I thought, I think I'm going to pick poems that are about characters, like people, and sort of like what what struck me was the about our commonality was like the extraordinary moments in the ordinary, or maybe vice versa, and those memorable and humorous things that happened. But then at the same time, you know, speaking from a non-dominant narrative, like speaking from a, not what is American United States typical narrative, so. Um, so that felt like a good choice uh, for me, a way to go. So I'm going to start with, I'm tying myself today, um, with a new poem, and then the rest will be old, and I'll be all know. Um, is, um, it's called Life With You Will Always Be a Series of Firsts, so that you're one of the, the first audience in real time that's hearing this. Um, and my son, who is now just turned four, he's, um, Life with you will always be a series of firsts. And today, you begin another new thing in a list of many new things that arrive each day, two years and eight months after you emerged into this world and breathed its air. The other day, you woke up and asked to sit on the potty, and I gasped despite myself. I knew then that diapers would soon expire. So will your lying on the changing table now that you want to stand and dress yourself. With each independence, your need for my help diminishes bit by bit. Each day you utter new sentences in Spanish and English, switching idioms with ease, free of the weight on your tongue I had with Tagalog and now Spanish, these languages not a part of my earliest infant. When you were a scrawny newborn, I sang to you, and lullaby and on repeat until you calmed, attuning you to the languages of your bloodlines. You are still that wild bucking fish that occupied my body for so long, now leading with your chest out, running before looking, feet and afterthought, drawn by the thrill of your body catapulting through space. Only a year and a few months ago, you lifted yourself to stand, stumbled and laughed, your Lola and I watching you try and try again until you took your first steps. This morning, we danced together to Marvin Gaye's What's Going On on a real record player. I remember myself as a child listening to the soundtrack of Cosmos with my father or sometimes the Beatles or the toys after waiting up way past bedtime for his arrival. 
falling asleep on his lap into the twilight. Today in this hotel room, you and I held hands and bent our knees, swaying back and forth, and you gestured me to turn you around and around, making revolutions like those records of my childhood. You know you've got to find a way to bring some love in here today. If only I could suspend this moment of joy, let it float to the ceiling like Marvin's high notes, those soft finger snaps creating your own timeless time, rising up to the ceiling. If I were to write down all the firsts, I would never leave this desk. These ruptures, bleeding bursts of light, memories constellating you, a flash of time blinding my eyes. So, I, because of the occasion, I'm bringing back this book because of the characters, and I'm going to jump to this. Um, I can't even remember three things these days. Mama, mama brain, let me just blame mama brain for everything, right? My mother's watch. So, going from son to mother, and this is me becoming a child. <laughs> My mother's watch, one. My mother's watch. A two-toned gold band Rolex, small moonlight face encased in curve of heavy glass, time measured without numbers. At the Palenque in the rural province, I say, Mom, that's too flashy. Someone might try to rob you. I heard that Tito R got stabbed in a dark alley near the house in Manila for a fake Rolex with a two shiny gold band. Its tiny hands tick time almost imperceptibly. Doesn't she notice that no one else in the Palente is wearing a real Rolex? Instead, pseudo-American logos, tattooed polyester t-shirts, old house dresses fade in the humidity. Doesn't she notice shifty gazes from low-moving youngsters slip through the narrow spaces between the bamboo stand overflowing with gravels of ice and the bushels of tumbling green bananas and the meat hanging and planks swaying slightly? I see that the vendors eye us curiously, feeling our fidgety ways as they hawk their goods. My height uncanny despite hunched over shoulders, unflattering blouse to hide my curves. And the recognition of Americans, us Americans like spies, causes a shift in tongue. They quickly switch from Pangasinense to Ilocano into Tagalog, Taglish, and finally English. Bilinakayo, yes ma'am, sir, to my mother's watch, emblem of 1969, 20 borrowed bucks, secret wedding, 220 somethings gawk out the window as they descend into the mouth of the big apple. The newlyweds learn to cook gizzards, nets, and smelt, occasionally a noble as a treat. First TV, a gift carried on his lap for port of entry into Niagara Falls, America. Unrecognized credentials, lawyer uncle turned butcher to feed his eight children, couch surfing and loans, six to a bedroom like a can of anchovies, caffeine and anemia, not enough sunshine, untreated TV and pneumonia, memorizing of books to pass exams while memories of home melt into too many cups of instant coffee. Three, a child's Fisher Price breakfast player tinkles Mary Had a Little Man. Dad flips real vinyl on Technics. We learn Beatles, Beach Boys, and Benatar. Late nights, sleepy-eyed after emergency room calls, the garage door opens, ice clinks in the whiskey glass. 
four. They do not yet miss their left-behind lives. Lolo's rule in the house with a green metal gate where nine kids left to the west, one by one by one. Movie house in the little town by the sea. Popcorn sold out of recycled coffee cans. Cine del Sol burns to the ground. Fatherless ten, sibling grudges. Chimenez, shuff, shuff, shuffle across aged wooden floors. Time measured in sunrise and sunset. The ones left behind keep time in slow. Tick tock, the clock's not turning digital. Send us some tang, cigarettes, M&M's, medicine, a change of the curtains. Five. Now we are too fat and too fancy, standing in the palenque. Flies hover over mounds of silver anchovies. Jackfruit is cracked open to reveal orange innards. Durian sends pungent sourcey towards our nostrils. Time measured in the melting of ice, the rotting of fruit. I feel ashamed for the fat on my cheeks. Try to disappear, but an American can be seen from miles away, and mom refuses to hide her real Rolex, even when a watch is unnecessary. Um, thank you. And um, sorry again for my delay in driving. Driving inside traffic, inside like a mile, like a short, like a big walk here kind of thing. That was the most excruciating. It's like, I'm almost there. Oh, wait, I'm not there. I can't move. I can't park. Okay. Are we walking towards there? Um, and sometimes, okay, so humor. I thought about humor with this, uh, with thinking about choosing. And this is called Fun on the Frontier. It's kind of like a little, um, a little, glimpse into the 80s in the, so I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and like the, the one of the sections of this book takes place in this tri-cities Pacific Northwest and like super Americana type like county fairs and and you'll hear the stuff but also the 80s and like Madonna and all that kind of stuff um and this poem kind of tells you what kind of childhood I was having fun on the frontier we wore white cowboy hats dyed with a fluorescent blue, silver buckle tucked with a blue feather. We wore St. Patrick's t-shirts and bright colored shorts matching. She was the picture perfect with the rim of the hat tilted over the tip of a tall nose, the kind of nose I wanted so I squeezed and pulled hard when one watched. She had freckles like strawberry shortcake and a smile that made her eyes turn upside down moons and dimples, I would smile so hard to punctuate my face. I painted freckles on one year to be pretty long stocking. I had a pug nose cute according to skin brown like cocoa even out of the sun, chubby cheeks, short hair, too thick. I wore knee highs and kegs that soiled easy, wanted cowboy boots but mom never got them, jelly bracelets up my arm like Madonna, a cowgirl material girl. Inside, we petted goats as eyes grew veils of dust. The goats were itchy and smelled like wet dogs. We rode teacups holding our rims, screamed, yee-haw! Mom lingered as we pretended we were old enough to be alone. I felt apologetic for her accent and our general hue. She bought us pink and blue cotton candy, and we ate it too fast. 
bought us tokens so we could use the mechanical hand to never get the stuffed animal. On the way out, we screamed, yee-haw, blinking arms, and mom took a picture. Um, I'm gonna close exactly on time with, I was watching the time. Um, a new one again, and this is like totally out of, it gives a little bit of the characters as well, but it's kind of my manifesto for what I want to see happen. Not a silent film, it's called. I want to watch a movie where the Asian characters are not silent, where the Asian character does not have a high-pitched, tiny voice or no voice, or an accent that does not match her supposed ethnicity, where the entire joke is not how quiet she is, where all the white people make faces and stare at each other and say, shrugging to the other white people as though she's not there. I hear nothing. In the fourth grade, I went to the county fair with my white best friend, and we wore cowboy hats and blue other stuff on. I do not want to watch a movie where each Asian person represents her entire race. I do not want to have to feel so appreciative that at least the Filipino character is not a model minority, but is in fact an idiot. In the sixth grade, I stared in the mirror and pinched my nose and wanted blue contacts and blonde bleached hair like the uh, Vietnamese cheerleader who got into the popular crowd. In the sixth grade, I learned ching chong and you stink and discovered I was pretty for an Asian girl. I'm tired of seeing a Korean actor have to use a Japanese accent to portray a Vietnamese character. I'm tired of seeing the Filipino actor have to portray a Mexican character. I'm tired of the Filipino actress claim Hawaii but not her bloodline because it's more exotic. I'm tired of the Filipina being the nanny. In the 11th grade, I brought my family to the Renaissance Fair and we tried on bodices and skirts and I felt something was wrong but did not quite think a Filipino would never wear this or be here during the Renaissance. I want to watch a TV series all the way through and not grimace when an Asian person is misrepresented, which is an inevitable, non-intended plot twist that no one notices. I want to watch something where I am not fragmenting myself in order to relate to part of a remotely similar character because I do not exist. I want to watch a character I relate to without breaking myself into pieces. I want to watch a movie where the Filipina is at the center of everything and beautiful and strong and has romances with men or women or whomever she would like and has a well-rounded rounded personality, a powerful voice and flaws, but none of them are that she's shy or cannot get friends due to her A-plus work ethic. I'm afraid of disappearing. I want to watch a movie and relax. Lean back and enjoy the show, knowing it is for me, for my laughter, for my pleasure, not at my expense. I want to buy some popcorn and just laugh and laugh and laugh and order all the butter and a large overpriced Diet Coke and yummy worms just because I want to. This movie will be so loud, the walls will crack. So we're going to give these two awesome authors a chance to dialogue with each other, take some questions from you. But before we do that, I want to give a special thanks to Natalie, who is handling the ones and the twos. And just <laughs> to hopefully many hundreds and thousands of people all across the globe. And Peter, who has held down the booking here, uh, the events here for as long as I have known him, which has been quite a few, a few decades now. It probably longer, and just remember that uh, we're in a 
we're in a we're here in this space in city lights because people fought for this place and supported this place during the pandemic, which is just like every bookstore that we love it uh, practically in the Bay Area, and we're really lucky to be able to uh, to stand here. So I'll turn the mics uh, back over to you guys, who will take take us out with some questions and, and answers. Do we come in from the audience? <laughs> Hello, <laughs> Maybe, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I don't know if you remember Amy, but we shared the stage of the Howard Zinn uh, yeah, uh, uh, book festival uh, many years, I don't know, how many years I think ago? it was eight years ago. Eight eight years ago. ago. I, saw the, I saw it on my timeline. Yeah, eight saying. years ago, okay. <laughs> um, so we shared the stage, but uh, and we were talking about similar topics that we're actually talking about today, you know. And well, you know, one thing with the starting with your last poem, uh, I just remembered uh, that that well, it's not that I remember. This is the I share that sentiment as an Arab, right? Watching Arab characters, right? And so that since since nine eleven, they've gotten uh, uh, a little bit Hollywood's done a bit tricky with it, and you, you might recognize this trick, which is. You always now you have like a multi-dimensional Arab character that is good, but that's to counterbalance the terrorist or whatever. And also like uh, 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 it's the same problem lies with Arab culture when it uh, in terms of like we have like first of all we have Indians playing Arabs in film. We have all kinds of like people of color that. Have played like uh, uh, Arabs, but also we've had like like you mentioned, we've had like Lebanese playing Syrians or Syrians playing Egyptians or Egyptians. You know, like always the wrong mix thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, mix and match. Yeah, mix and match. And that's that's something I wanted to just bring up. You know, but, well, I think uh, I think uh, it's interesting because maybe to the you say to. Since the outside world, but what is that? I, mean, I think I think there is some improvement like on the streaming services now. There's um, we're watching some shows around their characters, but I also feel like when you're it's like the casting in mainstream movies and like there was the because I was gonna say after, since this poem there was this incredible movie of everything everywhere all at once, and yeah. I thought that like I thought that movie had characters where. Not like you forgot, like it was so normalized in some ways that is there a background, but that never happened. And it was a great movie, but they weren't Filipino, still having somebody listen to me in that movie. Um, help, help me write it. Um, <laughs> like to the people listening. Um, but I also feel like it does matter, like the specificity, right? Yeah. And and like uh, when they did that movie Raya and there was mixture of Southeast Asian um, cartoon, you know, actors, but then, I mean, uh, characters and songs and all that, but the issue is they didn't cast as many Southeast Asian actors, and that does matter, right? Right, right. Um, so. Yeah. Uh, the other, uh, obviously, major commonality that we have is uh, in talking about, like, these stories that I have in my book, a lot of them deal with uh, a village in South Lebanon and a way of life that's all disappeared. And, and that way of life is... Uh, it's it's not like you know uh, it, there's um, so many traditions that have disappeared with it, and uh, but it's it's 
it's such a rich place to mine for you know stories and such. And that that's another thing that was common. I was reminded, especially with souvenir and rereading souvenir now uh, uh, with uh, with Amy's book. I remember a story of like because now a lot of that way of life, even in it's not just like that the West is guilty of, of put, you know, putting these twisted imagery of, of what we represent, you know, what our cultures represent, but also like the Lebanese themselves like are hawking out a, a kind of a, 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 a not an authentic, uh, you know, not in an authentic way, uh, that what this, this culture that existed. So my uh, one story I wanted to tell you is my mother, one time we were going up, uh, uh, may she rest in peace, she passed away in 82, but uh, one day we went to a restaurant and inevitably uh, uh, dad uh, uh, was a club manager, he was a restaurant manager. And so he graduated with a bunch of uh, people that became owners or managers of restaurants. And we walk into this restaurant, and as usual, this, the owner or the manager rather uh, greets him, and he hasn't seen him in years since they graduated together, right? And so we're sitting there, and uh, uh, my mother is distracted, and I look over at what she's looking at, and they had set up um, like a sort of a Bedouin woman that is making a peat, like like pita bread but it's the thin bread um uh, on a on what's called a sage on this metal dome and she's sitting on the ground with wood fire and all this but uh, my mother is distracted because it's not authentic it's not the right way and she's dressed you know for an evening out a nice dress and everything so eventually she just gets up and walks over to this woman and says, uh, uh, let me, instead of saying you're doing it all wrong, she says, let me show you how we do it in our village. So she rolled up her sleeves and put her scarf back and started doing the bread. And the people in restaurants are gathering, you know. But it's, it, this is like, uh, we're also guilty of like selling our culture in a sens sensationalized way too. You know, that's ourselves. also beautiful. I mean, that's awesome. yeah. Yeah. Beautiful story. Oh, I've written that story. Okay. In fact, Allied Media had created uh, the Allied Media Conference, which happens every year. They wanted to create uh, like a PDF to distribute to all attendees mm -hmm. that where you have a, a story about food and community because what mom was doing is something that the women in the village used to gather every Friday around the sage and make bread and make bread for the whole week. So they would pack it and, and they would go. But what was important about that gathering, as you might imagine, is that that's the time where they share their story, you know, like what's happening at home, they get help like a mutual aid that happens around the bread. So I wrote that for, for the Allied Media and they wanted a story about food and community with a poem and a recipe. 
and I also figured out <laughs> figured out uh, uh, a way a recipe, or I found a recipe where since sage are not readily available, I mean Reem here the you know that has the restaurant here started with a sage and you know a pop up you know, but I discovered that you can actually use a wok and turn it upside down on a gas stove and you can do the same thing and i found a recipe where you can do that at home so that's what i that was my contribution to the conference yeah you know what that's reminding me of not that that's brilliant but i was yeah. also going to say the some it's like what the the yearning of like here in the united states we lack all of the context of everything like food like we may be able to go get every kind of food um, I remember, but, but then we don't have that context of the specificity. And I remember I went to a, a food-related conference that was like Asian Pacific Islander oriented, and someone was asking, or maybe it was even a panel, it was a long time ago, about why Filipino, why there's not a ton of Filipino restaurants. These are good Filipino food. Why is it not out there? And everyone like surveyed. They just kind of surveyed, and it was that, oh, it's my mom's cooking at home. Like that's the best, food, right? And and yet. When I think of that, like my family chose to like, assimilate, so they came and they didn't bring the recipe. So what happens when not only is it supposed to be the home cooking in that home setting with your family, but then also maybe then that also gets broken, and then you try to go to a restaurant and people think it's adobo and pardon, no, not even adobo, people think it's fancy and lupia, which are actually like fast food, but they're not, and they're, they're influenced from Chinese food, and it's very familiar here. That's not like the really good Filipino food I've been eating in the Philippines was caught fresh from the ocean and from the garden and was things you can't even find, you know. And it was in a setting where the mosquitoes were biting me and we were all, you know, and you're sitting eating with your hands like on bananas. Like that that's can't be that's not recreated unless it's like a tokenized thing, a special, you know, cultural experience. Yeah. So it is baffling that there isn't more Filipino uh, restaurants in Washington, D.C. Have you heard of that thing? It's, I think I have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. They got the Michelin star. It was yeah. like mm -hmm. voted one of the best restaurants. Mm -hmm. You know about it. Yes, too. I come from Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So, you know, that thing was, they opened up a, 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 a restaurant with Filipino cuisine, and it was called that thing, and it was a tiny mm -hmm. place. And every day you had to stand in line. Mm -hmm. at 5 p.m. to get in at 7 p.m. Mm -hmm. and, and it was always packed. In fact, there's a whole business that was created along the line with people serving drinks outside of their, where they made money out of the people waiting for that saint. And unfortunately, that saint has been a victim of COVID oh. and it closed. But it's like, the, the, it became the most popular restaurant in D.C. And that was the only Filipino restaurant in D.C. But the question is, can you bring, how do you bring those, everything surrounding the food, right? Everything surrounding the population, how those writings and how those, right. like the story you brought, I was, it's like the, and I guess that's probably why I'm obsessed with ob objects and artifacts. And I'm almost thinking like, like, um, you know, that's why your stories like the objects and things, the cigarette stands out, the, the watermelon seeds. It's like we can only have things, uh, and then when we, if we here, we have to be displaced on or uh, integrate. Um, you know, I have a, 
like very few items in my house and I have to like almost like become imbued with all of this lost memory and history. I can't recreate the fact that my family always in a collective home and now I'm raising my son, it's just me and him. You know, that's totally not natural in many parts of the world and it just is that yearning, you could call it like racial melancholy is that like psychological tourists. I got introduced to that a long time ago, but it's coming up for me again. It's like the more we get closer still to understanding things about other parts of the world, but we don't, we don't, we lack the structure, the family structure, and you know, the closeness and the mutual aid, like you said. We still feel like if, even during the pandemic, oh, if something happens, I'm just, I'm screwed. <laughs> like I'm just by myself, you know, we don't have that sense, the neighbor, you know. Yeah. So. Well, uh, we wanted to open up for Q&A. If you have any questions, this is the time. Can I ask a question? Of course. Okay, uh, let's uh, mark it out. When I'm teaching, I was like, okay, this is why I'll... Um, <laughs> no, but I also am just really curious, like, uh, how your family family members feel about your support. <laughs> well, I have some of my family members here oh, in the audience. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, I mean, uh, the, I, I didn't get much feedback from family members except from uh, my brother, Rayanne, who liked the stories. But uh, one thing he didn't like is that I used a lot of real names. Yeah. <laughs> and and he, he's right about that because it could be a problem. If it wasn't Arabic, I would be in real trouble right now because there's copies that have reached Lebanon right now. And my father's trying to translate those stories to, to Arabic. Um, but my father's like really proud uh, of, of this and has been following the progress and the tour. And every time I talk to him on the phone, he's been really supportive. And what's uh, what's funny about that is he had i used to be he forced me into civil engineering and i wanted to be a writer and a teacher uh and he forced me into civil engineering so i had a 20-year career in civil engineering before uh i you know 2007 i i pursued an nfa engineering and pursued an nfa uh, but he now he's like we uh, I don't know if your parents ever do this, but they like they rewrite history so that they're not so. They're not the bad guys. <laughs> not the, like, I, we always support you being a writer. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Any questions? Well, there's no further questions on this. I think it was Kevin Patchen that said those who say they love uh, poetry and literature but never buy a book or cheap sons of bitches. So <laughs> please, please, um, please support, uh, please support Rogers, please support this beautiful store. Thank you again to City Lights for making this happen, especially Peter. And um, thank you all for being here tonight. So fantastic. And we hope to see you again soon. Have a wonderful, wonderful solstice and uh, be well and safe. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.